Anne Frank was a German-born Jewish girl who kept a diary in which she documented her life in hiding under Nazi persecution. She described everyday life from her family hiding place in an Amsterdam attic. One of the most discussed Jewish victims of the Holocaust, she gained fame posthumously with the 1947 publication of The Diary of a Young Girl. I remember watching the movie The Diary of Anne Frank when I was a young boy, and I've never forgot one line that she wrote. She said, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. Now that's a pretty amazing statement considering the things that she went through. But what I want to ask today is, are people really good at heart? John MacArthur said, man likes to think he's good. In fact, he's pretty well convinced himself that he is. But deep down inside, man has a real problem in convincing himself of his goodness. And the problem is guilt because men are inevitably and invariably guilty and they feel that way. I heard the story about a man who sent a $50 bill to the IRS and wrote, I'm sending you this because I can't sleep at night because I was dishonest with my income tax. P.S. If I can sleep after sending this, okay. If I can't, I'll send you the balance. <laughs> now like this man, we all struggle with guilt. As we consider whether people are really good at heart, let's review what Paul has said so far in his letter to the Romans. From Romans chapter 1, verse 18 on, Paul has been arguing his case like a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom. He starts in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, arguing that the heathen are indicted of their guilt by the evidence of the creation. So if we make a summary from Romans 1, 18 on, the heathen are indicted by creation. As Romans 1, 20 says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God's attributes can be clearly seen in creation. And as a result, all people are without excuse for our sin in their sight. So the first thing we see is, Paul's argued that the heathen are indicted by creation. He goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, arguing that hypocrites who judge others are indicted by their conscience because they do the same thing that they judge others for doing. So the second point is hypocrites are indicted by their conscience. As Romans 2.15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. God's law is written on people's hearts, and as a result, our conscience will accuse us when we're hypocritical. Then, from Romans 2, 17 through Romans 3, verse 8, which ended up at last week, we see that the Hebrew is indicted by the commandments. The Hebrew or the Jewish people are indicted by God's commandments for even though they had God's law, they didn't keep it. As Romans 2.23 says, 
you who boast in the law, are you Jewish people, you're boasting the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The Hebrews were God's chosen people. They boasted in the law God had given them, but they indicted themselves and dishonored God by breaking God's commandments. Though Anne Frank came to the conclusion that people are really good at heart, Paul tells us the opposite is true. He's been telling us this from Romans 1, 18 on. Creation tells us there's a God. Our conscience condemns us because we don't do what we know we should do, and we don't keep God's commandments even when we know them. As we continue today and look at Romans 3, 9 through 20, We'll split up the passage into three parts. The first part is the charge that Paul makes in verse 9. Then we'll look at the case that he makes in verses 10 through 18. And finally, we'll look at the verdict in verses 19 through 20. So let's start by looking at the charge in Romans 3, 9. He says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Paul asks two questions here. The first question you ask is, what then? He's really just summarizing what we've just reviewed, what we've just stated, that we're indicted when we understand that there is a God by creation, when our conscience condemns us because we don't do what we should do, and we have God's commandments, and we don't keep them. So the next question goes on is, are we any better off? What does he mean by that? Are we any better off? Are we going to be indicted too? You might ask, who's the we? Are we any better off? Some people think that he's still referring, some commentators think that he's still referring to the Jewish people. But I think a better interpretation is that Paul's referring to the Romans that he's writing to and himself. Because later, even in these verses, he, he refers to the Jews separately. So are we Are you, the Roman people that I'm talking to, are we any better off? And the charge that he makes is that all are under sin. So the charge is all men are under sin. That's the case Paul has been building from chapter 1, verse 18 on. We're all under sin. So why does Paul make this charge that all men are under sin. I think the big idea, the key point Paul is making is this. We all need to know that we're guilty before God so we'll understand our need for a Savior. We all need to know we're guilty before God so we'll understand our need for a Savior. Another way to say this is we need to know the bad news to understand how good the good news is. We need to know the bad news to understand how good the good news is. We all need to know we're guilty before God. Why? So we'll understand our need for a Savior. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, I've got good news for you and I've got bad news for you? I can remember one incident specifically. It was January of 2005. My sons, Mike and John, my two oldest boys are twins. 14 other guys who all went to Drake University at the time, a number of them are pastors now, including Dan Rude, Luke Hookey, a guy by the name of Darren Miedema, John Schreiner. They took a trip to California after a conference, the original Faith Walkers Conference. And one morning in January, my son Mike called and said, Dad, I've got good news and I've got bad news. (laughs) Okay, give me the bad news first. Bad news is the man got wrecked. I think it's probably totaled. 
Okay, what's the good news? Well, the good news is nobody really got hurt. A couple guys had scratches, but nothing, nothing major anyway there. So, but I thought about that. If Mike had just said, well, Dad, I've got good news for you. Nobody's really hurt. What? You know, it really wouldn't make sense. Without understanding the bad news, the good news didn't make sense. We need to know the bad news. We need to know that we're guilty before God for the good news to really make sense for us to understand our need for a Savior. So, Paul makes the charge that we're all under sin. Then he goes on in verses 10 through 18 to make his case. He makes the case, he presents actually 13 pieces of evidence. Now, we're not going to point each one out, but he quotes six passages from the Old Testament, one right after the other. This was actually a common teaching technique for the Jewish rabbis in those days, just to go quote one scripture right after another. We're going to group that into three general categories. First of all, we're going to look at the character of the accused. Then we'll look at the conversation of the accused. And finally, we'll look at the conduct of the accused. So in verses 10 through 12, we're going to look at the character of the accused. Romans 3, verse 10, Paul goes on, he says, as it is written. So he's starting here now to quote from the Old Testament. He's quoting here initially from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Both of those Psalms in verses 1 through through 3 include include this message. He starts by saying, there's no one righteous. Not a single person is righteous. No one's perfect. No one's sinless. We sin in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And just in case someone objects and says, well, Paul, what about Abraham? Or what about Moses? Or what about David? Paul goes on, he says, not even one. No one's righteous. Not even one. He goes on to say, there's no one who understands. The word understands literally means to put things together. It means to look at things and to comprehend, to put together the truth about God, about man, about the world. Then he says, there's no one who seeks God. The word means, the word seek means a diligent, careful, determined seeking and searching. No one searches and seeks after God diligently and carefully. Why? People want gods that allow them to do their own thing or to glory in their own performance and their own works. Verse 12, Paul goes on, he says, all have turned away. We've turned away from God, and that leads God, and, and that way, the way that we've turned away from God, and the way that leads to God to go our own way. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Many years ago, Frank Sinatra came out with the song, I Did It My Way. May have been one of Frank Sinatra's most famous songs. Why was it so popular? There's something within each and every one of us. We want to do things our way. That's what Paul says here. We've all turned away. We, went, we wanted to do things our way. All alike, have, then he goes on, he says, all alike have become worthless. That word worthless can also be translated useless. 
like sour or bad. It's like being, it's like sour milk. We're useless like sour milk. It could be used to refer to sour milk. Without Christ, we're useless. We're like sour milk. Then finally, in this section, he says, there's no one who does what is good. And again, he's saying no one does good. People are not good at heart. And just in case someone tries to come up with an exception, again, he repeats that phrase, not even one. There's no one who does good, not even one. So he starts by making his case. He looks at the character of people, the accused, those who he's accusing. He says, our character is marked by our sinful nature. Left to ourselves, we've turned away from God. Not one of us does what's good. He goes on with this case about the conversation of the accused, which is marked by their sinful words. So in chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, he makes his case concerning the conversation of the accused. In those verses, in verses 13 and 14, Paul refers to the throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouths, all these parts of the body are involved in our conversations. First, in verse 13, he says, their throat is an open grave. That's a quote from Psalm 5.9, which literally says their throat is an open grave. Now, an open grave would contain a foul, decaying body. Few, if any of us in this room, have probably seen a decaying body such as would be found in an open grave. I think we can be thankful that we haven't. I've been reading recently a couple books on World War II, talking about men fighting on the front lines. And one of them specifically talked about dead bodies that were left on the battlefield rotting in the stench that they made. I am thankful that I did not, I've never had to go to war, that I've never had to experience that. But Paul's saying here that people's throats are like an open grave implying that our mouths are foul, dirty, obscene, that we can engage in off-colored humor, dirty jokes, immoral suggestions and proposition. A foul mouth stinks like an open grave, is what he's saying. He goes on, he says, they deceive with their thoughts. The Greek word deceive implies continuous action. Not only do we deceive, but we keep on deceiving. We lie, we mislead, we flatter. A pastor saw a group of teen boys sitting on the church lawn, so he stopped to ask them what they were doing. Nothing much, pastor, one boy replied. We're just seeing who's the winner and telling the biggest lie about their sex life. The pastor replied, boys, 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 I'm shocked. When I was your age, I never even thought about sex at all. The boys looked dejected and downcast, and finally their leader spoke up. You win, pastor. Okay, that one fell. <laughs> but we do have a tendency to lie, to deceive. He goes on, he says, viper's venom is under their lips. That's a quote from Psalm chapter 140, verse 3. Our conversations can be poisonous, like the bite of a deadly snake. Though we've all heard the old saying, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm, harm me. We know that words can harm us far more than broken bones. Lies, slander, gossip, and hurtful words that come out of our mouths 
can harm us deeply and leave us and others as broken people. So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 says this, there's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Remember many years ago, I read this verse in my quiet time. We were up at Becky's folks for a holiday, but I remember determining that morning I wanted to speak words that would encourage and bring healing. But later that morning, I jokingly insulted one of my wife's younger sisters. Though God had spoken to me specifically from his word saying, use your tongue to encourage and to heal, I had, you know, my, I spoke like the thrust of a sword. I didn't do what I wanted, to, what I'd, what I'd wanted to do and resolved to do. Our tongues can cut like a like a sword, or bite like a poisonous snake. He goes on. He says their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So he, he makes his case against the conversation of the accused by saying their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Many people speak like the soldiers I've been reading about in World War II. Before I became a Christian, even though I went to Sunday school, I knew the Ten Commandments said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I remember I'd say God's name followed by the word dang. Now, for some reason, I didn't really think that was taking God's name in vain. I don't know why that I thought that, but I thought it was a whole lot worse if you took God's name and you said the word D-A-M-N. I mean, I don't even want to say that word yet, but there was something in my heart that justified using the one expression, but not the other. But it was still cursing. I heard of a man who bought a parrot, brought him home, but the parrot started cursing him and using terrible language and insulting his wife. So finally, the man picked up the parrot, threw him in the freezer to teach him a lesson. He heard the parrot squawking and screaming in there for a while, then all of a sudden, the parrot became quiet. The man opened the freezer door. The parrot walked out, looked up at him and said, I apologize for, forgive, for offending you, and I humbly ask for your forgiveness. The man says, well, thank you, I forgive you. And the parrot said, if you don't mind my asking, what did the turkey do? Not only do we curse, but our tongues can be bitter, can be resentful and cynical. Our tongues speak cursing and bitter words, and we make Paul's case against the conversation of the accused. So we've looked at Paul's case. He's looked at the character of the accused and the conversation of the accused. Then in verses 15 through 18, he'll talk about the conduct of the accused. In verse 15, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. 19th century Scottish evangelist Robert Haldane wrote, the most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, and his greed. Just last month, six weeks ago, Hamas waged a deadly attack on Israel, killing babies, women, and the elderly. In the last century, the Nazis and communists have killed millions. Hitler killed 15 million people. Joseph Stalin in Russia killed 40 million people. Chairman Mao Zedong in communist China killed 72 million people. Between those three tyrants, that's 127 million. 
I've been reading, one of the books I've been reading on World War II lately is by Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy was America's most decorated soldier in World War II. He later became uh, a movie star, but he wrote a book titled To Helen Back, telling of his wartime experiences. And actually, I just read this yesterday, put it in my notes. He told of a buddy who was speaking of horses, some horses, the Germans had captured some horses, but artillery shelling the Germans had had hurt and injured some of the horses and they had to put the horses out of their misery. And his buddy said this, I've known horses all my life and there's not one dirty mean thing about them. They're too decent to blast each other's guts out like we're doing. Makes you ashamed to belong to the human race. Makes Paul's case here in Romans 3.15, their feet are swift to shed blood. And sometimes that makes us ashamed to belong to the human race. Now you might say, well, Bruce, I'd never murdered anyone. Remember a number of years ago, we used to do a, we did both a soccer and a basketball ministry. And I remember one time at one of the soccer ministries, I was given a testimony at halftime. And I remember saying that, you know, I know that I've broken all of the Ten Commandments. One little boy sitting right down in front, he was probably eight, nine years old, something like that. He raised his hand. He said, have you murdered someone? And I said, well, you know, I've never really physically murdered someone. However, I know based upon Jesus's words, I've essentially murdered somebody in my heart. In Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said, you heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Which of us can say that we've never been angry with another person, that we've never insulted another person or called him a fool? By the Lord's standard, we're going to all fall short. He goes on in verse 16. He says, ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. One <clears throat> ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. One commentator said this, sin always leaves a trail of pain, despair, and heartache. Sin leaves a trail. It's pain, despair, it's heartache. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. Now, we initially don't think that's going to be the case because sin brings pleasure initially. Remember this boy, this verse years ago, Hebrews 11, 24 and 25, God impressed it on me. He said, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That verse tells us very clearly, sin is pleasurable initially, but those pleasures are going to pass. Alcohol may help you for alcohol or drugs may help you forget your troubles initially, but that pleasure is going to pass. Maybe pornography, immorality will bring you pleasure initially, but you're going to be hooked. You're going to be snared. You're going to be trapped. The pleasures of sin pass. Verse 17, he goes on. He says, the path of peace they have not known. Most people do not have peace. We try to get it in a lot of ways, through possessions, through achievements, even by being, quote, relatively good compared to other people. 
but peace still eludes us. Remember I had an old high school, my old high school math teacher used to repeat this phrase often. Isaiah 48, verse 22, he said, there is no peace for the wicked. However, Romans 5, 1, Paul says this, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. People don't know the path of peace. The only way to true peace is being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he says, the path of peace they have not known. He goes on in verse 18 and finishes this section. He says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Here Paul's quoting Psalm 36, 1. The reason for the, for the conduct of the accused is that men don't fear God. They live as if there's no God, as if they're not accountable to him. They don't fear his wrath or judgment against them. Remember reading years ago about Adolis Huxley? He was the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley. And if you're not familiar with those names, Thomas Henry Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog. He was actually the one who helped push Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, actually far more than Darwin did. But when his grandson Adolis was asked why he thought people so quickly embraced Darwin's theory of evolution, he responded that it was a liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. People don't want to fear God. They prefer to live as if there is no God and think then, think that they won't be accountable to him. But ultimately, we will all be accountable to God. So Paul concludes his case against men, that all men are under sin by saying there's no fear of God before their eyes. Last section we'll look at is the verdict. The last two verses here. We see Paul's brought the charge against all people that they're all under sin. He's made his case given evidence against their character, their conversation, their conduct. And in verse 19 and 20, he gives the verdict. A couple years ago, I was on a jury for a criminal case in Polk County. And after we'd heard the charges the attorneys made and the attorneys had made their cases, as a jury, we were instructed to examine the evidence we'd been given and compare it to what the law stated to see if the evidence demonstrated that the law had been broken. Essentially, that's what Paul's doing here in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. When Paul says we know, he means this is an obvious truth. The law speaks to those who are subject to it. We're all subjected to obey God's law. As this evidence is compared to God's law, the result is that every mouth may be shut. In other words, we have no defense. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can say. As we compare our character, our conversation, our conduct to God's law, the verdict is clear. All men are guilty under sin as charged. The whole world is subject to God's judgment. And in verse 20, he says, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Paul seems to anticipate the argument that some people, that, that some people might make, well, well, there may be a few people who live out the law perfectly, but the problem is sinful man's incapable of keeping God's law perfectly. 
no one's going to be justified in his sight by the works of the law. No one includes the Jews, the Greeks or Gentiles, and it includes you and it includes me. The inescapable verdict is that we are all guilty before God. The realization that we're guilty is bad news. Earlier we said we need to know that we're guilty before God so we'll understand our need for a Savior. So I think summarizing this section, Tony Moretta said this, sin is much worse than most people believe, but the salvation provided by Jesus is more amazing than most people ever stop to consider. So Romans is teaching us sin's much worse than we believe, but Jesus, the salvation Jesus provides is more amazing than most people stop to consider. Again, going back to that idea, you need to understand the bad news before the good news makes sense. Darren used this illustration last week, but I'm going to use it again. When I bought my wife the diamond for our wedding ring, the salesman held it up against a black background so that the beauty in the diamond, the light coming through it, would shine more clearly. The black backdrop of sin in these verses is important because Paul will will soon show us the beautiful diamond of the gospel. So as we've looked at our passage today, we've seen Paul's charged. All men are under sin. God's word makes it clear that we're not good at heart. Paul has made his case by examining man's character, his conversation, his conduct. We've seen the verdict. We're all guilty. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, by doing good works. So how can we put these verses into practice in our lives? First application I have is this. Admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Have you admitted that you're a sinner who desperately needs a Savior? If not, why not make today the day that you do that? Humble yourself. Agree with God's verdict that you have sinned. Like everyone else, you're guilty. We're guilty. We need a Savior. John Newton wrote the very familiar hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton was the captain of a slave trading ship. God graciously saved him during a storm at sea. He became a pastor, and he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. But my favorite quote from John Newton is this. Toward the end of his life, and I'm probably getting toward the end of my life, getting older by the day anyway. John Newton said this. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Like John Newton, admit that you're a great sinner and put your trust in Jesus today. The older I get, the more I see the truth of Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. If you knew how knew some of the wicked thoughts that I had in my heart at times, you probably wouldn't be sitting here listening to me speak today. But if I knew some of the things that went on in your heart, I probably wouldn't speak to you either, so we're even there. But we need to admit that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. And the second application is this. Thank Jesus because he's a great Savior. 
As we celebrate Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving holiday this week, one thing we can all be thankful for is that Jesus is a great Savior. As I prepared for the passage, I thought of many songs and hymns that acknowledge that we're guilty sinners in need of a Savior. We even sang some of those earlier this morning to begin with. But one that especially caught my attention was an old hymn titled, Before the Throne of God Above. It was originally written back in 1863, but it was brought back in 1997, didn't really even appear in most hymnals before them, with a new melody and a musical arrangement. And the second verse caught my eye the most. It reads as follows. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. We talked about how we know we're not good. We feel guilty. He said, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Jesus is the sinless Savior who died so that we could be set free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me to look on Him and pardon me. Jesus is a great Savior. We want to thank Him every day for dying for our sinful souls. May may we do that today and every day for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though like all men we're guilty of sinning against you with our sinful nature, our sinful words, our sinful actions, you sent your son Jesus to take our place and die for our sins. He truly is a great savior. Help us, Lord, to realize how badly we've sinned against you, our holy and righteous God, so that we'll truly appreciate how good you are and how good the good news of the gospel is. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that's never put their trust in you, I pray that today would be the day that they would humble themselves before you and say, yes, Lord, you're right. I've sinned. I need you. I want to trust you as my Savior and my Lord. So, Lord, thank you for how you're working. Help us, Lord, to spread the good news of the gospel to our broken and hurting world for your glory. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.